freelancing and contract work have always been a large part of the American economy. But the introduction of app-based firms that connect talent with need is something entirely new. We've been taught to believe that high-profile tech startups, such as Uber, were changing the future of work for the better by diffusing freedom and authority and broadening the power of workers to work for themselves. In large part, this is still true, but the optimism that accompanied early internet-driven gig work is now tempered by the realization of its challenges, pitfalls, and economic risks. For highly skilled workers, independent and contracted work is often flexible, lucrative, and fulfilling. For those lacking high-level technical design and other professional skills, however, it can become a trap, forcing workers to run harder just to stay in place without labor protections, financial predictability, or benefits that those employed in full-time jobs enjoy. Increasing the challenge are technological changes that continuously change the competitive playing field, allowing those contracting out work to reach further and further beyond the borders of the U.S. to tap skilled workers in other countries at lower wages. Seen from this angle, the gig economy looks like one more step toward an increasingly insecure economic future for those who aspire to life in the American middle class. Sarah Kessler, author of Gigged, The End of the Job and the Future of Work, joins us today to explore the world of the gig. Sarah is a senior editor at Medium Science and Technology Publication 1.0. Previously, she was an editor and reporter at Quartz, a senior writer at Fast Company, and a startup reporter at Mashable. Sarah Kessler, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. It was a terrific book that you've written. I'm really anxious to get into the content and unpack some of what you've written for our listeners around the topic of gig economy and gig work. But before we get into that, I always like to ask the people that I'm interviewing to just share a little bit about their path to their career. This is a podcast on vocation, career, and work. And I find that you know many people who, who like what they do have really interesting pathways getting to that thing that they like to do. Why don't you just talk for a couple minutes about your background and how you arrived as a writer and and your interest in this topic? So I don't know how interesting the story is, but I actually decided to become a journalist in high school. And I had always really liked writing and announced to my very practical, conservative, rural farm-raised accountant parents that I was going to be a novelist. And they're like not super thrilled about the idea of me going to college for something that sounded like it would be unemployable. So I did a little research and I found that there's this great stable career called journalism, which that's a little bit of a joke because... <laughs> yes, of course. Were they more enthusiastic? It is a tumultuous time out there. And so I decided that's what I would be. And I grew up in a pretty small town that had a newspaper circulation, I think maybe 500, somewhere from 500 to 2000. I don't remember. I walked into the newspaper office and introduced myself to the editor in chief and asked if I could write stories for them because the high school did not have a student newspaper and then actually was ignored. But then the editor showed up at career day at school and in a packed room full of teachers and students. I raised my hand and asked what had happened to him <laughs> calling me back. So the way I got a job in journalism was perhaps would be annoying in any other career. 
But as an asset, as a journalist, I was very stubborn and persistent. And so it turns out I really love journalism. From there, I got a degree in journalism, graduated kind of at the end of the financial crisis. I convinced a blog to hire me, Mashable, which ended up being a more significant publication. I was employee 13. And when I left two years later, there were 100 employees. And yeah, and then worked at Fast Company Magazine at Quartz. And then and now at Medium, which just started a kind of journalistic editorial wing and has hired a bunch of journalists and is doing great work with kind of a different model for journalism. You say that's not an interesting story. I think that's a fascinating story. And I see several themes in there that I do a fair amount of work talking with students about career questions, and they are endlessly interested in that topic as they prepare to graduate and move out into the world. There's several very interesting facets to your experience. One is the doubts sort of trending toward opposition from close family and friends who have questions about those kinds of professional decisions and the importance of you know, people kind of persevering in their key interests in life. The reason we call it hardly working is not that I don't want people to work. It's that I want them to work in jobs that they love and that they would do for free if they could, because that really means that they're, you know, they're close to the center of who they really are and, and their passions and, and the things that kind of carry us on through a career. The other thing I think is really remarkable about your story is your your persistence in seeking out opportunity. I think that that is something that is a little bit of a lost art these days. I always appreciate it when people reach out to me and say, I'm really interested in what you do. I want to know more about it. I want to check out the opportunities. I'm, people are afraid of being too persistent. And I think that it's more the opposite. People aren't persistent enough in pursuing opportunities. So great story. And I really appreciate your sharing that with us. Why don't you talk a little bit, just give us kind of an overview of the book and why you decided to write it. Sure. So the book follows the journey of Silicon Valley's gig economy. And that's something that I first encountered when I was working at that blog, Mashable, and I was a startup reporter. And my job was to hear... I wrote about four stories a day about startups. So I'd be on the phone with all the new startups that were launching and they'd tell me how they were going to change the world. And I noticed this trend of startups whose pitch was, we've fixed the job. And you know, this was also, as I mentioned, like at the tail end of the financial crisis and there was still very high unemployment. I mean, there is again, but that wave of high unemployment hadn't petered out. And their pitch was like, now you can work whenever you want, wherever you want. And literally, they would say there's no excuse to be unemployed anymore, because now you have this app that you can press a button and work comes to you. The startups that launched at this time were like Uber and Postmates. There were apps that worked like Uber, but for washing your car, washing your laundry. And they painted this kind of utopia. So I ended up following that for years and started to become interested in what it meant for the people who were working that way. What I found was that it wasn't always really ever this kind of utopia that had been painted. So the book follows kind of that Silicon Valley journey. But really, I think of that as a microcosm or kind of a front-leading 
edge of this big trend that's kind of been happening in the U.S. workforce for decades since arguably the 70s, which is work, this like nine to five chunk of work is becoming less and less relevant to people and work is being kind of chopped up and distributed in ways that kind of circumvent a lot of the protections that we built into our labor laws and regulations. A gig job, I would imagine, comes in a bunch of different flavors and some are maybe better than others or some are more or less accommodating. But how do you define what a gig job is? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that when people say the gig economy, a lot of times they're talking about many different things. Like there's the app version of Uber where you, you know, press a button and you're usually doing something that's short term and in person. There's creative freelancers who are, you know, 1099 independent workers, but might be designers or journalists. And those are different things. And I like to think about it. In my book, I follow a like young college graduate who joins this gig economy startup that's saying it will give you programming work. And for him, that was an amazing move because he went from a desk job that he was bored at to making, I think, was it $12,000 his first month? He had made so much money in his previous job that he had been able to save, I think, a year's worth of savings. So that if he couldn't work for a week or wanted to take a vacation, he could rely on those savings instead. He purchased his own health insurance. So it wasn't a big deal that he wasn't getting employer-provided health insurance. So he kind of had this safety net of making so much money that the flexibility and the ability to choose when he works was A, like really present and B, kind of worth it. On the other end, if you're somebody for whom setting a floor is relevant to your to how you're being treated at work which is kind of what labor laws do is they set a floor on like how little you can be paid they set a floor on if you can be discriminated against at work all those things losing those things by having a job that's classified as being a freelancer is a much bigger deal because you're actually at risk of being exploited and in my book I follow people for whom that was relevant also like there's this man in Arkansas who I followed who signed up as a freelancer for what he did. What he functionally did was answer phones and customer service for Sears. But like his actual employment was he was an independent contractor for a small business that had a contract with a larger business that had a contract with Sears. So that's a lot of levels. And he would be, for instance, paid and think like, am I being paid the right amount? And he's afraid to speak up for fear of losing his job in which there's like nothing to protect him from wrongful termination. You know, often like his schedule would be so variable, he couldn't like understand when he was going to be able to work in a way that would allow him to get another job. And it just looks like very, it looks very different. And so kind of grouping these things all in together is sometimes a disservice. And we're going to get into that a little bit more in terms of the, from the way you talk about it, there's kind of a bifurcation of the gig economy. And, and I want to get into that. In the first part of the book, you talk about people taking gig work to have freedom from the tyranny of the boss. That doesn't always work out the way people expect. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the idea in the pitch is often be your own boss, but often kind of technology is a thing that 
makes it possible to manage people in a way where you're not a human manager telling them what to do, but which functionally controls what they do. So an example of this is Uber might send a driver an email that says, you know, you can work anytime you want. But like, if you work on Friday night between 10 and and midnight, we're going to pay you three times as much as we would on Tuesday afternoon when it works for your schedule. So functionally, you're like, well, if I'm going to make a profit doing this, I have to do it at that time. Where there was another app for cleaners, where you know you would go and clean your house, and they would send a cleaner who is classified as an independent contractor. And if they had had a human manager that said, like, we really need you to be on time, you know, they would have been at risk of being called employers and forced to say, like, okay, we'll pay you health insurance and all of these things. But what they did instead is the app automatically, if it knew that you were late to your job, it literally charged you money. So you could be a cleaner who like lost $50 off of your job because you arrived late. Or you could be a cleaner who was actually in debt to the app because of these kind of penalties. So technically, you can do whatever you want. But they're kind of these... It's kind of set up like a game where it's pushing you to do the things that the company wants on their schedule. That's really fascinating, isn't it? Because the the objective there is to maintain the appearance of a contractor job, but still to try to shape worker behavior as if they were an employee. Right. And so I think it's helpful to kind of explain why this dance exists, which is in the United States, there are two primary ways that employees are classified. So one of them is an independent contractor or freelancer, and one of them is an employee, like a W-2 employee. And if you're classified as a W-2 employee, you're protected by all these things that are expensive for the company. So you're protected by non-discrimination laws, you're protected by minimum wage laws, and you get paid lunch breaks, basically every, every protection. You can unionize under federal laws. If you are classified as an independent contractor, the company saves usually about 30% on the cost of having you do the work. So there's all this incentive for companies to classify people as independent contractors. However, part of the way that you build a brand is by providing good, consistent service. Like for something like cleaning a house, the way that you do it really matters to a company. Customers want to be able to think that they have consistent service. It matters whether you take your shoes off when you enter the door. So companies also really want to provide that service. And the way that you would usually do that is management and giving people uniforms and telling them what to do. But because they would risk then having to classify people in this more expensive category, they often kind of do this like, well, we're not really telling you what to do, but our workers with, who get five stars from us, they always do this. And it's kind of like a wink, wink, we're not managing you type of deal that is frequently challenged as no, you're actually treating these people like employees. And kind of for almost a decade now, court cases and various agencies have been deciding one way or another. You know, they decide both ways, they go back and forth on whether these people working for apps should be classified as employees. I wonder if that's sustainable legally over time. It seems like I, used, I worked at the Department of Labor for a while and, and saw kind of the, you know, the regulatory processes that the Labor Department uses and how they get deployed differently depending on who's in charge. I wonder if it's possible that a different administration 
might look at the law and completely change the way it's applied to sort of rein in or try to limit some of these gig economy practices. Have you looked at that at all? Yeah, that did come up over the course of reporting the book. The Obama administration took a stand that it should be interpreted you know, more in favor of the employees. And then the Trump administration kind of immediately rescinded that guidance. And then, you know, it's complicated as different agencies might interpret it differently. Like not all labor laws fall under the same agency. So like in New York, unemployment benefits at one point ruled that Uber drivers could apply for them and they'd be considered for employees for that reason. But that didn't impact the ability for them to unionize under federal labor laws, which is maybe a little in the weeds, but it's complicated. And I think it has been like really expensive for these companies to fight these legal battles in California right now. I mean, it's really interesting. California passed maybe the most kind of extreme laws related to classification recently, where they made it much harder to classify workers as independent contractors. And although I don't think apps, you know, were necessarily they weren't the biggest impact of this law. You know, there's all sorts of employees that are classified as independent contractors from hairstylists to truckers. And there were, I think, you know, 50 interest groups or something lobbying against this law for that reason. But the thing that became the focus of the media attention and the politicians' intention was the Ubers of the world and getting them to reclassify their workers as employees which they've been fighting and won't do voluntarily. So in the first part of your book, you say something about how the culture of Silicon Valley, as it sort of rolled out these various platforms to provide various services, really the, the people who are designing these apps and building their business plans didn't really have any familiarity with the industries that they were disrupting. And I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about why that matters. Why should we care whether the people who are designing the platforms, say for a cleaning company or a car driver service or whatever, why should we care if they know about the industries that they are disrupting? There are a lot. I think this goes back to kind of just the diversity in technology issue where you have blind spots if you don't have certain experience and you might not be trying to design something that's harmful, but you also might not be able to see the ways in which it could be harmful just because your life experience hasn't allowed you like the awareness that those things exist. So for instance, I think the biggest example in the book is there's this nonprofit based in Silicon Valley that kind of heard what gay economy companies were offering and decided that like, wait a minute, like traditional workforce development, you go into a city or place and you try to get businesses to move there so that they'll hire people. And that takes years and it takes a really long time. But why don't we kind of train people instead to log online and get jobs in the gig economy? And they can do that in a couple of months after a class. And so it put all this money into that idea and piloted it in Arkansas. And it ended up that they didn't foresee kind of the whole system that created barriers to doing that. They didn't say kind of that people who are trying to figure out how to pay their water bill, you know, aren't prepared to spend, you know, eight hours sending out pitches for 
you know, bidding on projects that they might never get assigned. They didn't foresee that if you're going to like ask them to come to a class need to figure out how to like handle childcare or they didn't foresee that the internet in the rural town where they had set up wouldn't be good enough to actually log on. And in the end, like after years of the project, it was like single digits people who actually ended up getting any sort of meaningful employment. Does the market sort this out? Do the better organized or more thoughtful approaches, do they turn out to be more successful because they do spend more time kind of thinking about the unintended consequences and unknown unknowns that can really throw a wrench into a plan? I don't know about another nonprofit that did this gig economy approach. I know that the director said that if they were to try it again, they would want to think about people holistically and try to help, you know, on multiple fronts instead of being like, here's an app and now the problem will be fixed. Let's move on just a little bit here. This is kind of one of the biggest issues I think that your book really takes up and discusses in an interesting way. You've alluded to it already, but the kind of the Russian doll concept of how basically in the gig economy, you've got a whole system that's structured around a series of subcontracting relationships without kind of formal employment arrangements. The way it reads to me is, and you you talk about shifting risk, that everybody's trying to shift risk. I look at it and and I see companies that are trying to shift overhead. Everybody's trying to get out from under the expenses of running a traditional business, because that's a lot of where they can derive a margin in terms of the services that they're providing. The, the, the services, are, I would think, are operate on a rather narrow margin anyway. And the only way to sort of make room in that supply chain and that, and that profit chain is to try to cut out these overhead expenses for health insurance and pensions and offices and and other fixed capital expenses. Is that the way you see it or is it something different? I think that that is a fair argument. I think you might look at it and say, is that system one that we want or one that's working? I also question whether like a firm who's being paid to hire a smaller firm to hire freelancers, really adding a lot of value to that process. One problem that we have is that things like people's health insurance is overhead. Like why why do companies responsible for that? And I'm not sure that it's necessarily that like outsourcing is bad or having jobs that are structured in a way that's not the nine to five are bad, but more so that none of our societal structure support that in a way that maybe we maybe it does support a nine to five job or we would wish to be able to treat people. And I wasn't trying to characterize whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, but I, I just see it rather than looking at it just from an economic standpoint, that's what people are trying to do. They're trying to yes. reduce overhead and that's actually where they're driving their profit out of sort of extending that, did you give thought to like how gig economy structures fit in countries where there's a more generous kind of social welfare system, like, you know, state provided health insurance and, you know, much more robust safety net than the U.S., most places in the U.S. operate. Is that part of the equation, I guess, for trying to make this, in your mind, is a part of the equation for trying to make these things work better? 
I do think that a safety net that's not hinged on employers as the providers of a safety net, I think in that world, like this does work better. In the existing examples that we have, like we're countries like that do that, those tend to also be countries that don't allow or fight the idea that these are actually independent contractors also. So yeah, I do think that having a more expansive or just unhinging in some ways the social safety net from employers would be really helpful in making these systems work better. So let's talk a little bit about, I was really fascinated with the discussion about the way that the platforms don't so much equalize opportunity as equalize competition in terms of like, it's true that it opens up some opportunities, gig economy jobs open up some opportunities for people to make money and have some flexibility sometimes. But it's also starting to creep up the economic ladder. I mean, typically we think of Uber or like you, you talk about cleaning companies and so on. But other people are starting to talk about how the internet platforms can start to eat into kind of the heart of middle-class professions, you know, attorneys, accountants, because of, you know, the improvements in communication technology and broadband internet, you know, this isn't just a phenomenon inside the borders of the United States. You can get good, cheap help in a lot of higher level activity overseas. Did you pick up on that in your research? Yeah, and I think I think in some ways you know, it precedes the like Silicon Valley version of the gig economy. What the Silicon Valley version, though, I think shows is how that can be taken to an extreme and be made even easier. It can become very easy to outsource almost anything through these automated management systems, which is essentially like an app like Uber. It's an automated management system. It takes jobs and it assigns them, and it you know, guides the worker. And so obviously kind of outsourcing has been happening for a very long time. But there's a very interesting experiment or demonstration. I don't know what you call it, an academic demonstration at Stanford, where they took a complex project that you don't think of something that can be accomplished in kind of an outsourced kind of way, which was, I think one example was building an entire app prototype. And they built an automated manager that kind of without their without their coordination went on kind of these gig economy job boards and hired people for every step of it so the automated system it hired a designer and then it hired a design manager to check the work of the designer and then when their work was done it handed it off to the compiler who had to program you know they had all these steps built into it and completed an app in like a day so those kind of still theoretical examples take these things that we think of as, well, my job could never be broken up into like bite-sized tasks that I like complete as a freelancer, you know, at the management of algorithms, but maybe it could. Richard Baldwin, an American who teaches at the graduate school in Geneva, has written this book called Globotics Revolution, which I had him on the show to talk about that. And he really thinks this is the next thing We've lost a lot of jobs in the sort of the middle skill, the middle skill spectrum of, of the U.S. economy over the last several decades, and that these kind of higher skill jobs are now, at least theoretically, as you say, it's becoming more and more possible to outsource those 
those kinds of jobs. And I think that's that's something that hasn't really quite occurred yet. And of course, with the COVID crisis, it's hard to hard to know when we might get back to that issue. I, I do want to ask a little bit about COVID that wasn't envisioned in your book. But before we go there, let's just talk a little bit more about you know this very interesting dynamic in the that you point out in the book between you know people who do really really well in the gig economy and people who don't do do well and it's still a, a skill question right that's what seems to differentiate the success stories is skill level of the of the worker is that right yeah i i do think it mirrors kind of the normal or like not the normal but the same type of thing that you would see for employees, which is if you have, you know, more scarce and demand skills, you tend to do a lot better than if you don't. Have you had a chance to sort of assess, analyze sort of the impact of the economic shutdown associated with COVID on the gig economy? I've been thinking about it. It kind of brought into light in kind of a stark way how companies have been treating their workers. So kind of in the beginning, Companies like Amazon, who handles a lot of last mile deliveries via the gig economy and independent contractors driving their own cars, they'd sent memos out that were like, good luck. If you get sick, please stay home. We have no protective equipment for you and we're not responsible for you, which becomes appalling in the middle of a global pandemic. And then also this idea that these people aren't essential workers to the companies, which is what they've argued for a long time, is that they're just platforms and that the, the workers aren't essential to what they do. Also kind of became starkly false in the midst of the pandemic. In terms of the companies themselves, like Uber you know, had mass layoffs. People aren't going places. And they don't want to ride in an Uber when they go. Right. So it impacted them financially quite a bit. I just noticed a story the other day, or maybe it was this morning, talking about Uber making a play for another food delivery service. That seems to be, you know, the one place where they can continue to kind of grow in the midst of this. Uber just acquired Postmates, which was a lot another large delivery service. And what's interesting is neither has ever made money. (laughs) And kind of the idea. isn't it? It's really astonishing. It really um, is because I don't think they've ever convinced anyone that they'll make money either. It's like, we'll keep losing money until there's no competitors. And until then, they drive Lyft out of business. Is that the idea? Yeah. Um, that's how you get profitable. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So solutions. And maybe you don't have them, but maybe you've got some ideas about things that could be done to make the gig economy work better for more people. I think one thing we've already talked about, which is decoupling the social safety net from employers. So that might be some type of portable benefits, for instance, which just means, for instance, like health health insurance that's not attached to your job. Maybe that's because it's provided by the government. Maybe it's a fund that multiple employers can pay into. It would work similar to you know your social security account where no matter how many jobs you have, the account moves with you. That is one idea. Some type of worker organizing that works for the gig economy. It's been hard because you can organize in the gig economy. There's nothing preventing you from doing that. But there's also nothing preventing like an app where you depend on for getting your income from retaliating against you. Whereas that would be illegal if you were an employee. 
that is another idea. And then there's some people throw around the idea of maybe we need a third category of employment where you're not quite an employee, but you're not quite an independent contractor. The like criticism of that idea is that it would create more, say, three categories. If you added a category, more people would fall from employee to middle category than would be raised from independent contractor to middle category. So more people would lose rights than gain rights. But I don't know if there's proof that would happen. So I'm really interested in the virtue, as it were, of the U.S. labor market has always been its flexibility, you know, as compared to other developed countries. You know, the labor just moves around a lot faster. And the gig economy is kind of that idea on steroids. You know, it's kind of a Wild West, for the most part, Wild West approach to labor, like, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and here's, you know, here's a way of hustling to make money. And I wonder, how are we ever going to strike a balance between our desire to foster opportunity? Because this is even in the book, it's pretty clear examples of, of people who have really been able to rise and move a long way from where they came because of the gay economy. What's your thought on balancing this in a way that we get, we get the best of both worlds? So I think it's similar to the project that we've been working on since the American Revolution. Sorry, the Industrial Revolution, not the American Revolution. <laughs> I guess current events are on my mind in terms of revolutions. During the Industrial Revolution, you know, people came from working largely independently, distributed on farms to concentrated in cities, working for the first time in places where they had to all be in the same place at the same time during a defined workday. And it was pretty terrible. Like, we had children working instead of going to school. We had employers locking factories that some, you know, walking workers inside of factories that sometimes started on fire. We had no weekends. And then over time, we developed policy and protections that, well, it didn't create a perfect system. I think most people would argue has created a better system. And I think we just haven't really gone through that process of doing the same thing for the gig economy and ensuring that there's not so much a ceiling on what you can do, but a floor in terms of protecting people from being exploited. Well, I think that's a good place for us to tie this off. Thank you so much for being on with us. Where can people follow you in your work? You can find me right now. I work for a website called One Zero, which is owned by Medium. And you can also find me on Twitter at Sarah F. Kessler. And the book is called Gigged, G-I-G-G-E-D. Well, thanks again, Sarah. And really look forward to following your insights in the months and years ahead. It's obviously going to be a very interesting time. And thanks again for being on with me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.